0: Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities.
1: Hi, this is Matt Slepp and host of Leading Voices with ULI. In my day job, I lead Terra Search Partners, a real estate search firm based in San Francisco. But in my in-between hours, I'm the host of this podcast series where we get to explore the work and personal stories of exceptional people in the real estate world. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues and friends. And also, please review us and comment on the podcast on the iTunes store. Today's podcast is with Andres Dewani, one of the world's most influential architects and planners. You hear about him less than the architects because he's designing urban plans and cities, not iconic buildings. What struck me most from the conversation is, well, actually, he started designing those architect buildings, but then moved to planning because he found it ultimately more satisfying. He then founded with his wife, Liz, DPZ in 1980 is a planning firm to focus in on and develop the concept of new urbanism. They've since been the designer for over 300 towns and regional plans all over the world. Andres and Elizabeth are the co-founders of the Congress for New Urbanism. His passion for his business, his intellectual prowess, interest is fascinating. You'll get to hear about his life, you'll get to hear about his revisiting some of the projects that he's worked on, which are now 30 years in the making, and you get to hear a little bit about his personal life and his deep, dark secret of collecting cars on the side. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're going to talk about a lot of things today, probably not Leesburg, but let's have a sense of place in our conversation because that roots so many things here. And I'll just tell you, I am sitting in my office in San Francisco looking at the hill that is Chinatown in San Francisco. Yes. And, and where are you yes. at this moment?
0: I'm in a kitchen in Coconut Grove. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> Two coasts so, Yeah, I, I've, perfect have uh,
0: You know, I, I came here uh, from my office. Quieter than my office and there's the prospect of lunch so, okay um, I don't want to be I'm too far between I'm, you. I'm at a kitchen ta- I'm on a kitchen table if that paints the picture
1: so my day started in a really interesting way today. I live in the city I live on Knob Hill, one of the great neighborhoods in America. I took a 15 minute walk to the gym and while I was on the walk I listened to a podcast called Placemakers and I listened to your wife. Liz Plater Zerbeck, have her conversation on some of these subjects. I worked out, I got coffee, I went home, listened to the rest of the podcast, then I walked to work. I think it's a blessed life to be able to do that. And maybe that exemplifies some of the things you believe in.
0: Well, actually, one of the things that's interesting about San Francisco is that unlike some other places where the architecture is exquisite, the architecture is kind of mediocre. It's Correct. the urbanism, which is fabulous, and the weather isn't fabulous. It's the urbanism, that lifestyle that you describe, which makes it so valuable and hence costly and hence so hyper-gentrified. You know, urbanism is an absolutely tangible, I think, commercial advantage that is not often taken up by developers who feel that they have to provide tremendous private space, you know, the great McMansion, you know, the great the great clipped uh, hedges and the great landscapes and the, the gated communities and the golf courses, when actually at a fraction of the cost, you can provide urbanism. If you're interested in value creation, there's nothing quite as intelligent as urbanism. But it's uh, only a few developers have actually known that and they keep it as a kind of secret.
1: Maybe that's true, although I, this was one of my last questions, but we'll get to it first. It feels to me like the world has come to you Tw- 25 years ago when we did meet. That was the ideal. Suburban development was the ideal. But I think today, you know, over the last 15 years, the concept of walkability yeah. scores and Starbucks yeah. and back yeah. to the city well, in isn't it? I,
0: I know that you want to say it's me, 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 but actually it isn't. First, it's a huge group of people who actually discovered this. I would say that it's an idea whose time had come, okay? yeah, And it was variously driven. It has been, you know, it's it's now we're going to have our 25th Congress in Seattle coming up. And, you know, in in this Congress, 1,500 people out of our 2,500 membership shows up and has a wonderful time, learns a lot. But also, there are hundreds of these new towns and inner city neighborhoods that are actually explicitly new urbanists. But I would say that it's an idea whose time had come when we designed Seaside. And what we felt was very much in the air. And it was partially a failure of the suburban dream. And, you know, the backlash against the unfulfilled promise of suburbia, of living in nature, of driving about freely, of finding parking easily, you know, all this wonderful promise had begun to be betrayed. And you might be too young to know, but NIMBYs did not exist till the late 80s. You know, people still were happy with developers, and they would look forward to growth, and they would look forward to the next shopping center and the next subdivision. I mean, I remember it clearly when there was Mm -hmm. no opposition. Except the the low-income housing. There was always some of that. But even at the beginning, there wasn't. Like, even then, there was promise. The Uh backlash always comes when there's failure. You know the backlash is when the promise is betrayed. There was a you know hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing built in the 50s and 60s, and I, you know people were looking forward to it. It was it was going to be a marvelous thing. In fact, it was multi, it was multiracial, and it's only when it fails that actually democracy rears its head and creates nimbyism or creates opposition. So new urbanism was originally was originally driven by people who want to live a certain way. You know who. In the case of Liz and myself, we grew up in traditional towns. In the case of Robert Davis, our first client, the developer of Seaside, you know, he remembered the the coastal towns of his youth. Uh-huh. So you know, as in so many things, it's autobiographical at the beginning. And then there are, if you're not a complete monster, most people you'll find a lot of people that agree with you, you know, that want to live that way. And so it was first driven by the market and first picked up by developers, and it was picked up because it was profitable. Only later did it become a way to deal with NIMBYs, who were, in fact, quite sick and tired of the traffic. That's, of course, the first one up. And we were able to present that these ideas were actually part of the solution and not part of the problem. And the new urbanism to this day is actually driven by the fact that it's one of the ways that you can overcome opposition to development. You know, even if it's necessary, even if the development is necessary and for people like yourself, you need the shopping, you need a place for yourself, you need a place for your kids. They oppose it until they realize that new urbanism with its diversity, but also above all its traffic mitigation is part of the solution. And so that drove the second generation of of new urbanism actually.
1: Uh And I should know this, but for the new urbanism concept, how much of that deals with large plan, uh, large-scale plan, large planning versus what we deal with here in San Francisco is someone wants to put a building up and the NIMBYs don't want the building to go up versus caring about a huge no, development.
0: No, no, that, that, that's, uh, th- that's at the level of the project. And the right. new urbanism, yeah. of course, we do projects as professionals, but we do not have a, a great deal that's new to contribute at the level of the single building. Okay. There's some very good designers like Dan Solomon, for example, designers of single buildings, who's the founder of the Congress of the New Urbanism. But it's at the larger scale that I think we can add value. And actually, the insight that the New Urbanists had was actually best applied in cities less fortunate than San Francisco, cities that are not doing well, or until recently were not doing well. You know, the Clevelands, the Buffaloes, you know, so many of the cities in the South, the Mobiles you know, the Mm -hmm. Lafayette, Louisiana, and so forth. And actually our insight was that cities were not competing with each other as they were in the 19th century, say in which Chicago was competing with St. Louis or, you know, Buffalo with Cleveland. Cities were competing with their own suburbs. So once you get, you know, at the level of the planner, we don't really have the chance to get people to move to a city, you know, that's at a higher level of policy. But let's say from the point of view of the developer of the planner, Once you get, once you decide to move to stay mobile or stay Buffalo, Mm -hmm. you are, the inner city is competing with its own suburbs. That's really uh, what's new is in the old days, cities did not have suburbs that were essentially competitive with themselves, but now they are. And what we discovered is that the suburbs do quite a few things better than the city. And once you equalize that, once you equalize let's say ease of permitting, let us say ease of parking, let us say perceived security, once you equalize it, there's a huge market segment that wants to live in the city. So, you know, we have done, for example, my office has done, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 inner city projects, Uh inner city plans. And the reason they're not well known is that they're principally policy plans. They basically, what we do is we level the playing field, so that the market can operate, so that the market of those who love living in cities can actually operate with a kind of equanimity. Because right now, if you want to build an office building or start a store or buy a house, it is much, much, much easier to do it in a new suburban area, a new suburban subdivision, a new suburban plan unit development than it is in the city. And what we do with our plans is we equalize that. It isn't very glamorous, but it's very effective.
2: Well,
1: and it matters you don't want to hollowed-out donut in the city. With ULI, we were actually in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, and I, I was shocked it was illegal to build housing units in downtown Nashville, and now maybe there's 8,000, 10,000 units over the last 10 years. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. And so it had Rick been hollowed Bernhardt, out. By the way, and the person in charge of that for the last 15 years is a new urbanist, an exceptional new urbanist planner called Rick Bernhardt. I don't know whether you know that. I mean, that did just didn't uh-huh. happen. It was actually fostered and induced by new urbanist policy. And Rick Bernhardt is the person who did it. And, you know, but, you know, one seldom thinks when it's inner city work that there's a person involved. You know, that there's a leader. It's very clear in the Greenfield work, which is what we're known for. But it's not the only thing we do. It's just that it's so damn glamorous and visible when you right. build a new town. While the inner city work is, it's also very glamorous, but it's not very visible. So I would like to just have a call out to Rick Bernhardt and his team for what they did in Nashville.
1: Go for it. It's totally true because we go to different cities, again, with Urban Land Institute or with other events and you visit the city and we actually get to hear a lot of the urban planners. And I think it's their capability of pulling together both the politics and the vision that makes these things happen in a big way.
2: Yeah,
0: and by the way, they understand city, which actually the prior generation right. of planners, equally talented, equally well-intentioned, and often very much better funded, you know, right. the planners of the 60s. Unfortunately, they didn't understand urbanism. And so mm-hmm. they generally undermined it, you know, by mm-hmm. blowing out, by demolishing buildings, creating parking lots, you know, pedestrianizing streets, you know, the whole armature that was the fire and, and, and all the silver bullet projects, you know. All these ideas, oh, just build an aquarium and you're going to be okay. You know, just build a space needle with a rotating restaurant, you're going to be okay. You know, it's, um, right. and we're so over those silver bullets. Even the, the, you know, the Gary effect, you know, the Bilbao effect. Uh-huh. I mean, that's just BS. Bilbao was a marvelous city, fantastic city before uh, the Gary building, the Frank Gary building. You know, the, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Frank Gary has built lots and lots of buildings that are great buildings in cities that are mediocre or worse. And they didn't turn the, the city around. You know, the essence is that Bilbao was a great city that had done a lot of work on itself, deindustrializing the river, cleaning it up, and creating a, a subway, and generally making itself a wonderful city to live in. I've been to Bilbao about 20 times. And, you know, the last thing you think of is that, you know, if you're actually living there, or uh, you know, a long-term visitor, the last thing you think about is the is the Frank Gehryt building, you know, the Guggenheim there.
2: Right. Of so course, it's the fabric and the, the city. I
0: hope that's the, the last of the silver bullets. And I think the planners should just stop with the silver bullet stuff.
1: Well, know? the silver bullets, because, they won't uh, be silver bullets. Great buildings will still happen. They may not be the silver yeah. bullets, but they fit into the fabric and story of that city.
0: They are, but they're presented and, as silver bullets. You know, a tremendous understood. cost. And well, that's one of the things that I would like to just present them for what they are, but no more than that, because it will not. You know, I would say, you know, you can do 10 silver bullets or just make it an excellent school system and an excellent school system will do much, much more than the 10 silver bullets. You
2: no know, disagreement. It's, it's patient
0: work. Mm-hmm. Patient <laughs> work is what it takes to, to bring back a city.
1: So let's totally change the subject. I want to hear your story. So I'm curious. You grew up in Cuba, you were a refugee, which is a topical subject at the moment, lived in Spain, came to the US, were well-educated. Tell us a little bit about your story and then how that story brought you to architecture and design.
0: Well, I'm gonna do it very quickly, okay? Because Sorry. I'm kind of bored with it, because it's my story. But we're, we're not, it yeah. began a long time ago. My, well, my father and grandfather were both developers that had something to do with it. Interestingly, Both of them had interesting careers. My grandfather was actually studying in Paris during the times of Baron Haussmann, and he brought all that fantastic vision to our city in Cuba, Santiago de Cuba. He built a wonderful neighborhood, very French, in its layout and its buildings and so forth, you know, just extremely elegant. One of these things that you find in the French colonies, you know, like Vietnam, very nice. Uh Mm -hmm. And then my father, a generation later, was actually a standard issue ULI guy, absolutely by the book. You know, he was uh-huh. really amazing. And he was building a kind of Levittown, you know, the Cuban version of Levittown. He brought in FHA to Cuba. So here you get two different generations. Of course, right. my grandfather was pedestrian and much more what we're interested in, what we call new urbanism <laughs> now, Well, my father's was automobile-oriented, you know, with car ports and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up time. with that at the family table. Although I must say, I didn't, you know, I wasn't very responsive to it. And then we left Cuba at 10. We mm-hmm. moved to Barcelona.
1: When right. you left at 10, were you, was that a the time that the revolution was occurring? And did you yeah. feel and experience it, that?
0: Oh, yeah. No, the revolution was very, a lot of it took place around Santiago. And very mm-hmm. much. I mean, I remember perfectly, not only bullets flying and but fantastic news every day. I mean, all these re- young revolutionaries were like baseball stars, you know, to us. In fact, they had the baseball cards, once the revolution uh-huh. triumphed, the American baseball cards were replaced by, you know, the same kind of cards in doing them, but with okay. revolutionary heroes. It's really interesting. They just <laughs> so we were very aware of it. And my father, my parents were very much on the revolution side. But, of course, their business was intervened, was taken away. And so a year into it, we left. And my parents were so sick and tired of Cuba and the Cuban thing that they didn't want to go to Miami, where everything gets bred back into it, you know. And right. they said, this, we've had enough. And so they took us to Barcelona, where we had no, no prior roots, but where there were no Cubans. That's all they were interested in. Now, they settled there. I mean, I lived in Barcelona from, you know, that very early age, say 11 to 24, but I was studied in the States. That's the only thing that, you know, yes, I lived there, but I studied in the United States. So I wasn't really Spanish. What, what would happen is that I would really, really get into Barcelona and this coastal towns like beaches. I and mean, this is open urbanism. We had the run of the city, you know, even at 10 or 11 with the little traffic there was in Barcelona in 1963. Right. Uh-huh. We could go anywhere in this city all night. It was so safe. And so that, you know, that gets in your blood. And then when we finished uh, graduate school, Liz and I came to Miami and we said, you know, something's missing here. And we felt a kind of lack and we eventually identified it as urbanism. You know, there was right. no place to go out and walk, to do things. But you must imagine how... That was not the kind of thing that comes up first. You say, I'm just bored. You know, I'm bored Uh or I don't like this city. Uh, And of course, we had a great deal of luck and we had the ability to build a place. Uh Almost immediately, we started building a place that would compensate for the lack. Uh So that was all just great coincidences one after the other.
1: A couple of questions. One, one comment. I I lived in Japan in junior year of college, and and I went to coffee shops. In the United States, the only place you could go to a public room and hang for a while would be a hotel lobby or a bar. And bars weren't right, very yeah. nice. But then yeah. they there they had coffee shops. And yeah, this was pre-Starbucks, and I should have imported the idea. I, it,
2: I didn't. Well, <laughs> it you, know, I you
0: could have gone to any city. Anywhere in the world, in any culture, you would have found something like that. It was only here that we didn't. Not you know, in the United you, States, yeah, right? you, you definitely should have brought something back like that. Yeah. Starbucks is a phenomena. I think the coffee is ridiculously bad, but the, it's that third place. You know, the place It's the too, third place. That you hang out. Yeah, the third place. Yeah. I
1: think the rise of we the do. third place and the rise of new urbanism may coincide
0: in some ways. Many things coincided. Many. It was, uh, there were so many convergences.
1: You know, I interview people for a living for jobs, right, for real estate jobs. And you'd be surprised how many people's growing up kitchen was around a table that had something to do with real estate. It's just uh-huh. and you described it oh, in your really? blood from your grant. Absolutely. Yeah. It could be 30, 40 yeah. percent of the people I talk to. It gets in their yeah. blood. It gets in their bones. It's what they then think about. And it sneaks up on them as to what their well, role is going to be.
0: Fantastically interesting, isn't it? Making comprehensive places for people. I mean, everything else. You know, I've got lawyers and architects and doctors in my family, and they're just they, they're boring compared to any urbanist. You know, the urbanists have so much to talk about, so many issues
2: Absolutely that are true. actually
0: crucially important. So it's, yes. a bit, it's the most interesting thing. And I think our developers are actually fantastic. Not only are they generalists, which always uh-huh. makes you more intelligent, I think. But they're actually risk takers. You know, people who actually sign on the dotted line with their with their entire life savings. Those are interesting people. You know Absolutely true. because you know, for example, I'm a generalist, but I'm chicken, time, you know, for for that loan. And to find people that know all all sorts of things and in many ways don't even have to work. Because many of them mm-hmm. have already made it. But they're addicted. They're addicted to making community. You know, at least our clients, they just, they're just they addicted.
1: It's absolutely true. Although, let's talk about that for a minute. We're,
0: we're going off
1: all in different directions here. But talk about risk-taking because, you first of all, you started an architecture firm that became quite well-known. And then you left that and started your own firm to do planning. And then every day in planning, you're making big bets, taking big positions. It's not someone else's money maybe, but you're the one on – and your, your firm, it's on your back that a direction is being taken. Yeah,
0: well, that's it's risk responsibility for the, for the 25 or so people in my office, many of which have grown with us, you know. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty wonderful life at the office. For example, just uh-huh. to tell you, we have about 11 dogs at the office. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we very much like each other. It's a great, it's a great atmosphere. But actually, the risk that I find is that as I've grown older, much (laughs) to my surprise, people actually take my advice, you know, Uh I guess because I've got white hair and I feel like a kid still, but I'm finding that people actually listen to me and do what I say. And so you have to say, oh, boy, they're not going to question me. I'd better be very, very conservative (laughs) because, you know, I'm really playing (laughs) with with a lot of money here. And so I've become very conservative in my advice, actually. In the old days, you'd have to be radical just to get halfway there, because everybody opposed you. You know, we're changing in paradigm. The opposition was absolutely extraordinary, withering opposition. But now it's smooth, and so it takes a great deal of care and responsibility.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. It's an interesting point. I, I turned 60 this year, so it's an interesting inflection point in one's life because people take my advice now, too, and there's some wisdom there. But you do charrettes, and I'm going to guess that your world's probably like my world, which is the advice comes after listening and putting things together really well. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. but
0: Yeah. Well, you have to prod to make sure that people feel free enough to tell you what they really think. Yep. And so, you know, one of the ways to do that is when there's a difficult position. You know, people in public are you know, this political correctness happens in public meetings also. And people are strongly about something, but even if it's slightly politically incorrect, they won't mm-hmm. say it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I is when I feel something coming up, I actually take a, a more radical position, more a more politically incorrect position mm-hmm. in public in order to make the space for people to have an honest discussion. Because what I don't like is when people come to me about after the meetings, the public meetings, and say, now let me tell you what's really in my mind. Because what that does is it puts you in between the large public and that person. You know, you're the okay. dramatist that has to somehow tell them. I prefer that they have an honest discussion. And our charrettes have a reputation for being pretty hairy. You know, whoa, that's scary. What happened there? And it has Mm -hmm. to do with bringing out the complex truth, you know, which is really what America is about. I mean, we didn't need to have a presidential election to realize that there was a lot of stuff going on in this country that really was going to come out. And and if it didn't come out and you you didn't incorporate into your plan, your plan would die. There would be a slow poison and you would never know why it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so I like to bring that up close. And uh, mitigate it, if possible. And, yeah, I I love the public process. It's just amazing. But it's not about, you understand, it's not a political campaign about convincing people. And, you know, what I want to know is find where the poison is. It's almost the opposite. So somebody says, I'm really against you because the traffic is horrible. I don't say, no, I I don't actually lie and say, no, the traffic is not really. I say, oh, yeah, I know the traffic is awful. And it is going to get worse you know, with our project. So let's just talk about that. Right. And and then you find where the real poison is. And by the way, I don't personally have to end up being popular. You know, the elected official has to be popular because he has to be elected. Right. I don't. So I bear the brunt personally of a lot of this poison, which is out in society these days. Be- meaning you so could be the grouchy one.
1: Uh-huh. You can ask the
0: hard questions. Yeah, I could be the grouchy one. But as they say, you leave. I said, I know, I leave. That's why punish me. You know, let me bring it up. (laughs) I I, I said a planner that goes in and ends up the most popular person in town. That's not serving the elected officials well, because you basically they still have very difficult decisions to make. And you basically put it on their lap and they're not popular. You know, you have to bear it. You know, you have to you have to, you know, the planner has to tell the truth, you know, and then the elected officials can slip and slide a little uh, on that truth.
1: It's so, the difference um, between having having vision and having popularity, and they're two very different things.
0: Well, my grandfather, actually the French guy, used to say, you can either be popular or indispensable. And it's impossible <laughs> to be both. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's very interesting. Absolutely.
1: So let let's go back again, because I still want to talk to you about your your life and your story and how you came to be in your firm. And we can't not have the conversation and talk about seaside. So we have to we have to hit these things. Okay. So, so so a couple of headlines. Let me ask you a couple of headlines. So one is, OK, you started at Architectonica and Miami Vice Note knew who you were. So that was phase one. And then phase two was DPZ. Tell me
2: what okay. made what phase one and what made
1: phase two happen.
0: OK, we were not from Florida. Liz from Philadelphia. You know, I was kind of stateless. I was from Barcelona. Yeah, But we graduated smack in the recession of 1974, 75. And there was no work, right? So right. our class just spread to the wind. We went to the Midwest and to the South and to Texas. And actually, our class from graduate school was very successful because uh-huh. we, most of us had to start businesses because there were no, there were no jobs. So we came to Miami and with a couple of other fantastic people, Bernardo Fort Brescia, uh-huh. Miranda Spear, we actually, at age, I mean, I was 26, but another was 25. We actually realized that if we read the codes and designed the buildings, we could actually go to the developers with the buildings done, and the developers could respond, you know, we'd go to the realtor and say, right. what are the available sites? And then we'd look, read the code and say, Okay. So you can build X number of apartments, and then we go to the builder and say it could be built for so much, and then we find out how much. So we would put little business plans together, which got our foot in the door. And mm-hmm. most developers actually buy land without really knowing what the code says. And by the way, FAR is not what you can build, as you know. Right. Floor area ratio is not what you can build. What you can build is what you can park. And there are various, uh-huh. other, various other determinants. So the developers had this short footedness when they bought the land. And so that got us in very early, in our middle twenties, to build some of the tallest buildings. In fact, we we had built this, another was twenty-seven. I was twenty-eight, I was twenty-nine, and we had built the tallest building south of Atlanta, called the Palace. You know, which was uh, forty stories, and we were not even in our thirty. But there was something about these high rises which was profoundly unsatisfactory, which is they were just about photogenic.
2: Right. You know, the
0: program was elemental. It was just okay. Here are apartments. And boy, it looks good. And you're famous for a couple of years. You yep. get photographed, and you're famous. They're certainly profitable to do. But it wasn't that interesting. You weren't changing anything. It was, And, and also, we began to almost immediately that they went out of style. That whatever was cool one year was not that cool two years and was positively out of it five years later. So we said, wow, that's a dead end. But at this time, Leon Creer, the great European, the great theoretician of urbanism, had come mm-hmm. to lecture in Miami. And he literally converted it. He gave wow. some lectures that were beyond brilliant. And we said, urbanism is it. That's what we're sympathetic with. And we quit the firm and started our own. And again, the timing was perfect. We had a first project, which was pretty large, called Charleston Place. It was a success. Seaside was the second. And that was a success. And, you know, in those days, that kind of thing was unbelievably radical.
1: So you switched from architecture. To planning. I think that may yes. be a critical change. And then you did a couple of these projects. And then when did the Congress of New Urbanism come? Because then you, you had expanded your vision to yeah. be a leader in a movement. So talk about those.
0: Okay, the firm so let's talk about the, the difference between the, urban planning and architecture. Yeah. We're, you know, I'm still a licensed architect, I still can practice. The difference is. That, you know, while architecture can yield very large buildings and very complex projects, architecture yeah. can't do that. It's time constrained. Like you have to deliver within three to five years. Yeah. What's interesting about urbanism is that the time frame is 20 and 30 years. Yes. For example, Seaside, has not even finished yet. It's 35 years old. And we're building the last buildings of Rosemary Beach. Kentlands has its, you know, Kentlands and Lakelands 7,000 yeah, sure buildings. But Mm -hmm. it's also actually being redeveloped now. I don't know whether you know, but the entire town center is being knocked down and redeveloped very densely. So what happens is urbanism actually allows you to think past the present. It allows Mm -hmm. you to have a vision. Mm -hmm. And I find the present often very constraining. You know, when you look at a site, the only thing that's possible is a bunch of view lots. Or if you look at another site and the only thing that's possible is a shopping center, you get, you know, as an urbanist, you get to think past it. Right. And so you de- you may design the shopping center, which is currently viable, but you design it in such a way that 30 years later, it becomes a town center that it can mm-hmm. mold. Mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of vision often brings the town center early. People don't even wait to mold. So what we've found is that per- is by thinking 35 years out, which by the way, is, is an acquired discipline, you have to learn to do it. By thinking 35 years out, you can actually have vision, a vision that. You're allowed to have a vision that when you present, it's so compelling that actually people bypass the present and go ahead and build a future. The problem is when you're not even allowed to actually have a a vision because you're so present oriented. And so I find that the discipline of urbanism is certainly not just size and complexity. It's actually the time frame that's fascinating. So Seaside came very early. I mean, we wasted no time. And it was so successful almost beyond the instinct. It wasn't even, like Robert Davis didn't even have to say, look, I'm making money here. People Mm -hmm. just said, oh, my God, I want to do this. And so he started teaching. He started giving tours of Seaside to potential developers walking around. And then he said, well, enough of this. And he institutionalized it in a series of courses and lectures that's called the Seaside Institute. You know, so we actually brought in not only what we had learned, but we brought in what the engineers had learned, brought in what the marketing people had learned, and we created the Seaside Institute so that Robert could handle 20, 30 potential developers at a time. By the way, this is still alive, the Institute. And that became larger, and we got together with people that were doing similar things in California, you know, Uh other places, Pittsburgh, and that's when the, the Congress was launched. Because we always had the chance to lecture. I mean, all of us were paid to lecture. We didn't have to, we didn't need a forum. What we needed to do was have an elite group that we could learn from each other. That's what we did.
1: So that helps you make some things work, but also I'm gonna bet that one of the successful components of both relationship and your business partnership is that you do together bring a point of view expertise You you move each other in different directions
0: that do help your thinking. We do. We have definitely different personalities, which actually clients prefer one or the other pretty clearly. You know, so uh, it's nice having that (laughs) spread like the typical, you know, black clad architects, you know, who, you know, are virtually identical, uh, monosex, you know, that, that look in New York, not at all. We have different personalities. Uh-huh. So that helps. But that gives you more, gives us more breath. But we also have a mission. Uh-huh. You know, like this is not this is. This is the same. It's not just a mission. It's a mission. It's a shared mission. We now have five partners, much younger than we are,
2: uh-huh. and
0: I don't have to supervise them at all because we know what the mission is. And the mission uh-huh. isn't just keeping the office open financially. I would say that what the office is interested in is keeping minimally open, we we must do that. But having a very good time has always been important. And the new urbanism and its mission. So we don't right. do projects that are not new urbanist projects. We don't have to argue, as so often happens in other firms, that are not so clear about what their mission is.
1: So outside of the insurgency and outside of the business, this is back to the personal question. You're an intense guy. We've had a fun conversation, a fascinating conversation when you're not thinking new urbanism with or without your wife, your business partner, what do you do? How do you have fun? How do you relax?
0: We have a house in France that we spend increasing amounts of time and beautiful. in a beautiful, beautiful, perfect town in which we walk to everything. And uh-huh. so what we do is we compress our time at work to be there. Liz is able to manage maybe three months of the year. I can manage almost five months. So that's what we do, and we think very much of that. We just live that life, and much to our almost surprise, we found there was a place that actually, you know, the ideal city that we've always been projected, that we thought was un- unattainable ideal, actually we found in southern France. And so that is relatively new, and we have a beautiful house. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's paradise, and you... So you spend time there, and don't think that I'm working when I'm there. I'm just enjoying the day.
2: Uh huh. And you're you're
1: not driving to to coffee. I assume it's nearby. Oh
0: no, not at all. Although I am a car collector.
1: (laughs) Come on. Unexpected. No, I am. (laughs) Um,
0: And by the way, you know you know that Peter Calthorpe, uh huh, of course, Stepholisoides and Dan Solomon are total car freaks. Just so you know, we're not against cars. We're against cars as prophetic devices you know as just <laughs> simple understand. tools we love them we love them for the pleasure they provide and that's should be clear it's, it's misunderstood when people say oh you hate cars not at all we hate to have to commute in cars you know and parking hideous parking lots we want the cars just like you see them in the television ads you know they're either <laughs> In the landscape or in beautiful European squares? That's what we do with
1: cars. <laughs> that's where they belong and how they belong. I'm a bike collector. I'd rather have a couple of bicycles. And I do have a car, oh, yeah. of course, but it's oh, so more fun. beautiful. But biggest lesson learned? Biggest uh, regret's not the right word, but if you could do, you know, if you had one or two do overs like at Seaside, what now that you've had 30 years to look back?
0: Oh, every time I've said no to something, I've regretted it. <laughs> I <laughs> think that actually, yes. You know, even when it comes in, Seaside, of course, was the most unlikely thing conceivable. And we had to say yes many times as we went through a lot of flaky times. You know, it certainly was not a professional endeavor to work out how to do that. But I would say that in general, i been very, very happy with saying yes to things. It's always astonishing how well things have worked out. And those very few times where I've said no, uh, well, I've actually regretted it. I said, oh, wow, that was an incredible opportunity. I'm just talking about major opportunities right. that went somewhere else. So I think the lesson learned is that you you say yes. And so that's a method that I use continually. Always, very early, have a proposition and be ready to change your mind. And then the dialogue is, is, is a truly, truly creative. You're
1: defining leadership because otherwise you go into a room and you're just listening, but you're not listening to a goal that
0: is understood, and you're not leading. No, all you're doing, you're kind, or you're really not listening because you're trying to figure out what the defense is to what is being said. the way you're processing that, you know, whatever is being said is to defend your position, and you have to go. You have to be very. Your position really has to be vulnerable because otherwise you can really make a terrible mistake.
1: And in your business, a terrible mistake could last a long time.
0: Yes, it does. But also, it's uh, unlike architecture, where a terrible mistake can really hurt you, urbanism is much more resilient. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can tolerate lots of mistakes. In fact, it thrives sometimes on mistakes. I mean, San Francisco is full of mistakes, and almost all of them add character. You got it. And that's different from architecture. And one of the things we try to do is involve as many people as possible sequentially in urbanism to add that character. There's nothing more interesting than actually involving people that wouldn't do what you would have done. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please
2: visit ULI.org.